Seriousness, it's, it's, it's so good to have you here this morning. Um, if you're new with us here at Citizens, uh, my name is Adam. I'm the pastor here. And we just turned one year old last week. And so we had an amazing week together um, and just an amazing year together as Citizens Church. And as I was thinking about the past year, man, the realization and the reality of what we live in is that anything worth doing and anything that is special, anything that is spectacular is not going to happen without a few bumps in the road. Now, as great as a first year as we had, we know that no year is perfect, right? There were things that we had to deal with. There were things that I had to learn the hard way in leadership. But we know that while there are bumps in the road, this past year at Citizens was still worth doing. And I think that's true with with anything that we talk about, but specifically as we continue in our series through the book of Acts, we've been going through the book of Acts for a few months now, we see that anything worth doing in the apostles' ministry as men and faithful women follow the resurrected Jesus, indwelled by the Spirit, as they go on mission together, there's going to be bumps in the road. We've seen that already. We didn't get a couple chapters in, and we saw the apostles in jail together, imprisoned. Why? Because they had healed a lame man and they were preaching Jesus. Last week, we saw the very encouraging passage of Ananias and Sapphira, where they held back part of the proceeds of their cell of land, and the Lord dropped them. These were people who were in their community, bringing their funds to the apostles' feet. And when the apostles say, dude, did you sell the land for this price? They lie about it. And we saw that not just outside the community, but within the community, there are issues, there are bumps. And today, as we continue, we will see the tragedy of persecution. We will see that while the mission goes forth, faithful men and women are going to be drug out of their homes, are going to be persecuted. And ultimately today, we will see the first martyr of the Christian faith, the choosing and the persecution, and ultimately, the martyrdom of Stephen. And so if you will, let's open it up, Acts chapter 6. There's a lot more scripture today, and we're not going to go exactly verse by verse, but we're going to be looking at chapter 6 and 7, because these things can't really be split. You can't really preach the sermon of Stephen without looking at why Stephen was, was chosen in the first place. And you can't really preach why Stephen was chosen in the first place and take a break and not go directly into what he is saying to the religious leaders. So that's where we're at today. And as you open to Acts chapter 6, we're going to see three things. First, the choosing of Stephen, the choosing of the twelve. We're going to see the speech of Stephen as he talks about Father Abraham, as he talks about Joseph, and as he talks about Moses. And then ultimately, we are going to see the tragic death of Stephen today. But Acts chapter 6, if you're there, you can read along with me. If you do not have your Bible, if you do not have an app on your phone, it will be on the screen. You can follow along there. And if you do not own a Bible, we have Bibles in our lobby. We would love to get you a copy of Scripture. But Acts chapter 6, let's get after it. This is what it says. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole community of disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among your seven, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. 
But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole, commun- the, the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And, and this is where, as we get to a name list, you know what we do. You read it fast, and you read it with authority, and it doesn't matter if you're right. People believe it. So here's the other guys that they chose. They chose Stephen. They chose Philip and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and a convert from Antioch. See, you just read it fast and with authority, and you don't question it. Amen. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed, and they laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the disciples in Jerusalem greatly increased in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. But then look at verse 8. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some of the members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Sicilia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. And then they secretly persuaded some of the men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stops speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And so in the choosing of Stephen, it arises not from a great thing but by a negative thing. Within a Christian community that in, you know, multiple times throughout the last five chapters, one of the aspects of this new Christian community was what? They took care of all the people. They took care of the lame. They took care of the widow. They took care of the orphan. It was a radical community in a society that looked down on social classes of people that were beneath them. The Christian community actually elevated these people and preached that if anybody has a need, the church is going to meet it. However, this was not a perfect community. And we see that in the choosing of Stephen, that comes about because some of the Hellenistic Jews, which were those who were spread out by the diaspora, the the, the Greek-speaking Jews, said, hey, some of our widows are being overlooked, and the Hebraic Jews are being taken care of. Those were the Jews that would speak Aramaic. And so it raises hostility within the group, and they say, hey, this, this isn't right. In this daily distribution, that is a really good thing. Some people are being overlooked. And for a community that claimed to have everything in common, this was going to be an issue. Any community that grows at thousands at a time is going to face challenges. And the tense in which the Greek is written in this passage is the imperfect tense. So as it says, widows are being overlooked, it tells us that this was not a one-time thing, but an ongoing challenge for this community. And so some raised their voices and said, hey, this this can't be it. And I just want to pause for a second right here before we go any further and just make this side note that don't let the inevitable challenges of community keep you from going all into that community. You see, sometimes we think, especially as a church community, well, everything should be great. And the people around, you know, this community should never gossip about me. I should never be stabbed in the back by people I sit in the pew with. The pastor should always, always speak the right thing. He should never say something that he would regret. He should never mishandle a situation. The leaders here should serve me. 
And a lot of times in this Christian community, we have these false ideas that stop us from going all in because of one thing that has happened. Within this community, we saw this last week, we are an imperfect community centered on a perfect gospel. And because we are an imperfect community, there are going to be challenges such as this. People were overlooked while other people were getting what they needed. But don't let that stop you from being all in because you know what this community needed? They needed the people that said, hey, I don't think that's okay. They didn't need the people that just talked about it and left to find a new community. They needed the people that would raise up their voices and say, hey, what you guys are doing is really great. But some of these widows are being overlooked and that's not okay. Don't let the inevitable challenges of community stop you from being a part of a community. And in fact, we could say it like this, for the mission to go forth, the mission of the community, it takes all of us. For the mission to go forth, it takes all of us. Because notice, in chapter 6, when the apostles had this brought to their attention, what did they do? They did not try to handle it themselves, correct? They did not say, well, Peter, John, you just do better. No, what they did was they recognized we can't do all of this, and we can't stop preaching the word. So what we need to do is not put more on our plates, but we need to distribute more plates in the community. They did not take it on all themselves, and we need one another. The responsibility for this community cannot rest solely on the leaders of this community. And when I say leaders, I'm just the guy that holds the mic most Sundays. You guys are leaders in this community as well, and it can't rest solely on my shoulders. It needs all of us to go in, to go in for the sake of mission. And you know this. Guess who welcomed you when you walked in? Now, now hopefully Adam did, but it wasn't just Adam. Guess who brewed coffee this morning so you'd have coffee? Not Adam. Guess who put in the song so we could worship? Not Adam. Like I've always said, I got the easiest job here. I just show up and preach. We got a team of people who are making the mission go forth that allow me to focus on these things, and for that we are grateful. For the mission to go forth, it takes all of us, and I asked this last week, and I'll ask it again. Are you in the game? Are you in the game? Is God laying on your heart to serve? Is God laying it on your heart to give? Is God laying it on your heart to confess of unrepented sins so that you can go all in in this community. For the mission to go forth, it takes all of us. And I love the, that the apostles did not say, well, we'll just do more. They said, no, let's raise up. Let's raise up men who can do this. And that's what they did, right? We read that in verses three through six. And notice in verse three, you can look back down at it. It won't be on the screen, but, but notice in your own study that they were to select men of good reputation and men that are filled with the Spirit. In other words, choose men where character is greater than the capabilities. Character will trump capabilities all day. Character is always greater than our capabilities. Because if this is true, then it doesn't matter if you have a seminary degree in here. What the apostles looked for were not those who had perfect theology, but men of good reputation filled with the Spirit. Character is who you are, who you really are. And too many times today, pastors are called because, they're, because of their qualifications alone. 
It's not that knowledge is not important. I want to rightfully and honor and honorably handle the scriptures before you. It's not that those things are wrong. But what really matters is that, Lord, would you grow my character? Would you grow who I really am when no one is looking? Yes, Lord. Yes, grow me in biblical knowledge. Yes, Lord, may the Spirit anoint me in, 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 in sermon prep. But, Lord, may my character grow beyond my capabilities. Because let's face it, my capabilities, they're going to let me down one day. Your capabilities, whether it's at your, your, your school or your work or in your families, your capabilities will let you down someday. And so, Lord, develop our character. So that's who they picked. In this passage, it wasn't about degrees or knowledge. It was about who had a good reputation among the people. So let me ask you, as we look at this life and as we look at this, this call to follow Jesus, let's just ask the question, do you have a good reputation among the brothers and sisters? At your job, do the people around you know how much you know about Jesus? Or do they know that, man, this, this man, this woman is, is patient, is kind, is loving. These people actually care about my, my birthday that I just had. The death and the family, they actually, they actually care. What is your reputation among those around you? You see, in this church, we have two men that are going through our elder process right now. And one of the first things, the conversations that we have with these two guys is not, hey, how much Bible knowledge do you have? Some of the first conversations we have as we look at the qualifications in Scripture is, what is your character? Do you have the character of gentleness? Do you have the character that loves your wife? Do you have the character that is patient with this community? Do you lord your authority over this community, or do you care for the sheep as they are? It's so important that the character that we are developing, we do it together. And so as we get to the 12 men that were chosen here, we, we see Stephen, seven men. And as chapter 6 closes, Stephen begins to have things said about him. Did you notice that? They begin to rile him up, and men in the city begin to spread a false word against Stephen, and not his Bible knowledge, but his character. And what was their main accusation? Let's look back down at it, six through four, or 6, verse 14, and then we will continue in chapter 7. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. On the surface, this sounds crazy. On the surface, Stephen sounds like he is a man of destruction. If you want to get someone riled up, say that he's going to destroy the house. And I say that on the surface this sounds crazy because I don't believe that this is too far off of what Stephen was saying. In Stephen's own words, he probably recounted what Jesus taught. And do you remember what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew and of Mark? Jesus uses this language, right, where he says, tear this temple down and in three days I will raise it up again. And the people look at him and they say, tear this temple down. It took years for this temple to be built, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? And what Jesus was saying in that passage is, of course, it is my body that is the temple. And so Stephen, as he gets into this predicament, I'm sure that he did say something to the effect of, tear all this down and we'd still be good because we have Jesus of Nazareth. If all of this disappeared today, we would still be good because of who Jesus of Nazareth is, and it riles them up, and it's what leads us 
into Stephen's sermon. On the surface, this sounds crazy. And maybe it is. But Stephen and Jesus were not promising destruction. They were promising something better, and this was an issue for the religious leaders. So the speech of Stephen, before we open it, just a few things. A few things to understand about what Stephen is talking about. The prediction or the predicament that Stephen has himself in today as he opens this sermon, this speech, is that these leaders are riled up against him. And Stephen, rather than going on the defensive, he is going to speak in offensive terms. The, 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 the way that this speech is written in Acts chapter 7 is judiciary. It's like a courtroom scene. Peter is not playing defense here. He's going on the offensive and saying, if you are upset, well, let me take you back to the beginning. So this speech has six major parts. The first part is that it has God and Abraham. Stephen's going to take us back to the very beginning at Father Abraham. The second thing is God and Joseph. The third thing is God and Moses. The fourth thing, as Stephen enters out of the patriarchs, we see that God, the tabernacle, and the temple. Fifth, the indictment of Israel and the reality of Israel's need for salvation. And sixth, as Stephen puts a bow on this sermon that is ultimately going to get him killed, we see the, ex the exclusivity of Jesus' identity in all of this. And so with that in mind, let's look at it. Acts chapter 7, we'll begin in chapter 1. Are these things true, the high priest asked. So after Stephen was just accused of they're going to tear down the temple and rip away all customs and laws, the high priest asked, is this true? And Stephen just goes into it. Brothers and fathers, he replied, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran. And he said to him, the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country and relatives to come to the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had moved him to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. And after this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And after this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Father Abraham is where he starts. And you know Father Abraham from the song, right? Father Abraham had many sons, and I don't know the motions, but I'm pretty sure I did it in Thailand a few years ago, and I got it wrong. But there are some motions, apparently, that Thai children know that the stupid American didn't. But what we know about Father Abraham is that he had a twofold promise in the Old Testament. He had the promise of descendants, even though he was childless. But he also had the promise of land in which Stephen really keys in on and circles in on here. You see, the father's promise to Abraham was that until that promised land comes, the people would live as resident aliens in the land. That while the promised land is coming for 400 years, my people will live as slaves in an exile land. And you just have to think that Stephen a Hellenistic Jew, a Jew who was spread out, 
because of persecution. He lived through the diaspora, and he is relating to the promise of God, not of land. The promise that God gave here was not just land, but it was a situation. You see, land in the Old Testament always equaled rest. If you had land, you had rest. What does the Bible describe the Israelites doing for 40 years in the desert? Wandering. They had no place to, to, to rest their head. But in the Old Testament, if you had land, you had everything. You had rest. And what Stephen is saying here is that the promise to Father Abraham was not a specific location, but it was a situation of rest. We could say it like this. That the gospel is not tied to a specific location, but rather it is tied to a specific person. The gospel is not tied to a specific land. It's not tied to a specific piece of property. The gospel is tied to a specific person. Was it not Jesus himself who walked this earth as a resident alien, coming to a people that utterly rejected him? He walked this earth as a foreigner. And we see that as Stephen opens his sermon, Jesus is the better Abraham. Because in the book of Acts, very shortly, just next week, it will begin to show us that God has grafted in others into this ancient promise. That at one time it was the Israelites living in a specific place. But now it is all people, all nations, all tongues being grafted in because Jesus is the better Abraham. Jesus is the ultimate foreigner that lived in a land that utterly rejected him for the sake of sinners like you and me and for people People in Stephen's culture, people in Stephen's context, people that Stephen is talking to, they truly understand that they're living in this time where this place was not their home. This place was not their home. And so the tension here is being turned up. We said it the last few weeks, the, the tension is being ratcheted up. As Stephen looks at these believers, looks at these, this Sanhedrin rather, and says, this land in which you, you, you stake so much claim in, stake so much promise in, guess what? God doesn't just reside there. I know you're proud of your history, but it's no longer tied to a specific piece of land. It's tied to a person. And i got to be honest with you, spoiler alert, as we keep reading, this doesn't make them happy. And normally, this is my defense, when someone's not happy with something I'm saying, I tend to shy away or just shut up. But Stephen just keeps it going. And he says, you know what? Let's go even deeper into the history which you so divinely claim. And so that's what he does. Let's keep reading in verse 9. He gives this short, short section of Father Abraham in this land that is not tied to a person or not tied to a place, but to a person. And then he says this in verse 9. You see, the patriarchs that he just talked about, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. He rescued him out of all of his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom inside of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over this whole household. Now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan. And our ancestors could find no food. And when Jacob, was, was, when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our ancestors there for the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Verse 14, Joseph invited his father Jacob and all of his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. 
and yeah, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there. They were carried back to Shechem and they were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for the sum of silver from the sons of Hammer and Shechem. Now, what's going on here, you may ask? After speaking as living as resident aliens and looking at Father Abraham, Stephen now moves our attention to Joseph. Now, just some backstory on Joseph. What do we know about him? Well, just like Father Abraham and his many sons and all the, you know, the, the, the movements, we know that Joseph had that coat of many colors. Now, is there a song with Joseph? This isn't rhetorical. I don't know. Is there a song about Joseph? People are shaking their heads no. So you might not know who Joseph is because you didn't learn him in Sunday school. I don't know if VeggieTales had it or something like that. But Stephen now draws our attention to Joseph. And Joseph was a, 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 a son who his father greatly adored. And his brothers hated him for it. In fact, when his father gave him this coat, his, his brother said, you know what we should do? Let's take him out. Let's tell our father he was dead. And that a, a, a wild animal came and just ravaged him. So what they did is they threw him in a pit. And they said, he will die here. And they took the coat back to the father and was going to tell their father, Someone, something has killed Joseph. But then, you know, they thought in the goodness of their hearts, well, let's not just lie about his death. Let's just sell him to slavery. So they sold him into slavery. These people came along and they sold Joseph. And Joseph rose to power in Egypt. And as Joseph is rising to power, there is a great famine in the land. And as there is great famine in the land, all the people came to Joseph and they were able to eat because Joseph realized if I store up food for these seven years, the next seven years during this famine, I can feed all the nations. So all the nations come to Joseph, including his brothers. And we see that in the story of Joseph, as we talk about us living in a resident, uh, 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 an alienated place, and we get to Joseph and we see that, that Joseph was mistreated by his brothers. We see some interactions that Stephen is, is really pulling out. And think about this for a moment. Joseph, sold for money, sold into slavery. Jesus, sold for money. Joseph, betrayed by his own people. His own brothers betrayed him. Jesus, betrayed by his own people. Joseph rose to power and saved the nations from famine. All the nations would come to this throne and receive food because of Joseph's wisdom. Jesus rose from the grave and proved his power to what? Save the nations. Jesus is not only the better Abraham. Jesus is the better Joseph. You see, it was Joseph who was rejected by his brothers and sent away just as Jesus was. But that is not the case for you and I because of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, you and I are accepted and we are welcomed. In fact, we could say it like this, that do not live for the acceptance in this life while true acceptance comes from the Lord. If Joseph lived for the acceptance that came in this life, he would have not found it in his family, guys. Jesus, if he was living for this acceptance, he would have not found it, and certainly he did not as these people rejected him. So you and I, as Stephen begins, living as resident aliens, not only are we resident aliens in this weird world, but we are like Joseph, rejected by the people. Jesus is the greater Joseph because now the good news of the gospel is that you and I, as Ephesians 2 tells us, are no longer strangers, no longer foreigners, no longer those outside the promise. We are the citizens in the household of God. This is the gospel. 
that just as Joseph was rejected by his own people, but then rose to power in Pharaoh's court, you and I, as we live in this resident world where it's not our home, we will be rejected too, but because of the gospel, we will not be rejected because of our sin if we trust in Christ. A holy God cannot look on the sinfulness of man. But because of Jesus and what he did on the cross, bearing our sins, we are now accepted based on his sacrifice, not ours. Jesus is the better Joseph. And lastly, as Joseph is landing the plane but still has about 50 verses in his sermon, he moves on from Abraham and Joseph and gets to the the man that was probably most revered by this culture, Moses. Now we're going to pick up in verse 29 because we're really just going to study here the calling of Moses. Moses, Not the backstory of Moses, but the calling. So verse 29 in chapter 7, this is what it says, follow along with me. When he heard this, now what did Moses hear? Well, Moses just heard that he knows that, that someone, has, someone came to Moses and said, we know what you did to that Egyptian, you killed him. And so when Moses heard this, verse 29 says, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness on Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. He was appro- he, as he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, and this is what the Lord said. I am the God of your ancestors. And who are our ancestors? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals of your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now come and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, now this is Stephen talking. This Moses whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you as ruler and judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. You see, what Stephen is getting at in the calling of Moses as he's he's expounding on what God meant when he called Moses, he is not saying, because like I said, Moses is greatly revered in this culture, and I'm not saying that he shouldn't be. But what Stephen is saying here is that God did not call Moses because he was the great leader. God called Moses because God will always set his people free. What, God is, what, what Stephen is saying here is that, yes, Moses is a special man when it comes to our culture, when it comes to our tradition, when it comes to everything that we look at. God used him mightily. God used him mightily just as he did Abraham and just as he did Joseph. But God did not use Moses because Moses was something special. God used Moses because God is a God who always frees his people. For the Jews during the time of Acts, there was probably no one more important than Moses. In fact, I mean, let's think about it. The Jews are still here because a man like Moses led them out of slavery, and God used him greatly in the wilderness. The Exodus is a major theme in the Old Testament. And within the Exodus, Jewish celebrations and festivals were established. It's super important when it comes to the history of Israel. However, and Stephen draws this out, it did not take long for the people to what? Reject Moses. So we have Abraham, we have Joseph, 
And now we have Moses. It did not take long for the people to reject Moses. And then in verse 39, as Stephen says, our ancestors wouldn't listen to him and they pushed him aside. He wraps it up like this. You see, Stephen is not just going to share the history of Israel, even though that's what he's really speaking against. That's what they were mad about, right? That, that, that Stephen said that Jesus of Nazareth was going to destroy all this history and all this culture and this temple. And as Stephen draws their attention to the history of what they're speaking about, he draws to a close like this, not just expounding on what the scriptures say, but interpreting them in light of the current context that he is speaking. Look down at it, verse 51. Now, if you really want to get at someone, say this. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Now, we're not going to get into it, and I had a visual for circumcision just to explain it, but I decided not to use it. That's a, that's a joke, by the way. I, I did not. But it's people that took such great pleasure in who they were as they wore their great robes, as they were circumcised as people of the covenant, as people of the promise. They were the best of the best, and God was honored to have them on his team. As that's what they thought, Stephen says this, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you were always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you did also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold of the coming righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of the angels, and you have not kept it. What Stephen is saying is I'm showing you this history of Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, not to just give you a refresher, but to show you that as important as these figures were, they were utterly rejected by the people, and you are no different. How do I know that? Jesus was just killed 100 days ago. You are the same. In fact, all of these patriarchs were mistreated and misunderstood by the people, and it is no different. Stephen is not just calling out their interpretation, but he is calling out who they are. He says, I am not the one defiling the law. You are. And as people who made it their mission and their lifestyle to keep the law, this is a big deal. We could say it like this. Think of an illustration. If you loved football, and say you loved football so much that you never missed a game. You would watch it on TV. You would go to the games. You knew every uh, stat about football players. And it was just no one loved football more than you. And in fact, you loved football so much that you, you bought a plot of land and you built a stadium. And you would come in and you would run plays. And you, 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 you had an expansion team in the end. You loved football so much. You put all your money, all your efforts, built this entire stadium, and you loved it so much. And someone came in, and they saw the stadium, and they said, man, this is great. You, you really love football, don't you? And you would say, oh, I eat football, I sleep football, I dream football, I, I love it. And what if that man walked into your stadium and said, yeah, but you, do you realize that you're playing with a basketball? You see, that's what was happening in the religious leaders here. They were so close, yet they were playing with a basketball. Stephen is calling out, even if all of this burns, we have this Jesus of Nazareth who you are rejecting. You love football so much, but you're not playing with the football. It looks like you love football. You claim that you love football, but you're not playing with the one thing that makes it football, a football. This is what Stephen is saying. 
He's relating it to Jesus, and he's saying that you have pushed aside, and not have you just pushed aside, but you have murdered this Jesus. Jesus is the better Abraham. Jesus is the better, uh, who are we talking about? Joshua. (laughs) And Jesus is the better Moses. And this is the final straw for the leaders. Sadly, in this moment, we recognize that the first killing of a man because of his faith in Jesus. The last six verses of Acts chapter 7 is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Someone is just killed because of their faith in Jesus. And this is going to start something that the church has never ceased to see. Do you remember just seven years ago, 21 Coptic Christians on the, on the beach in Libya beheaded by ISIS? 21 men lined up in orange jumpsuits. It went viral over the internet. What starts with Stephen, the church has not ceased to see. Men and women all over the world today are being persecuted just as this for their interpretation of the scriptures and who they believe Jesus Christ to be. And they're saying, you have gotten so close to God, but you have missed the man who is God. And as this winds down the book uh, or the the chapter 7 of the book of Acts. Let's 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 read it together and realize that this is not just a story of a man who was killed, but something that would set the trajectory for the rest of the Christian church and this is where we close. Verse 54. When they heard these things because they weren't too happy with what Stephen said, they gnashed their teeth at him, and Stephen full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And not like, you know, 420 stone, but like with rocks. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. You see, up until this point, Stephen has been staring the leaders in the face as he speaks directly to them. But in this moment of Stephen's death, he turns his gaze upward. He turns his gaze away from the men that he has been speaking to and turns his gaze upward. And what he sees is the Lord Jesus Christ standing which signifies that the Lord Jesus is welcoming his testimony of who Jesus is. He's accepting of what Stephen is saying. Like you would, if someone was coming into your home, you would not sit on the couch. You would open the door. You would stand. You would welcome them. And so for Stephen to see the Son of Man standing, Jesus is accepting his testimony, and his testimony is Jesus. He is welcoming him home. And for Jesus to be standing, it shows that not only does he accept Stephen's testimony, but he will vindicate Stephen. He will vindicate Stephen, and he will judge Stephen's murderers. And in this moment, the Scriptures tells us that he falls asleep. Christians have always used this term, fall asleep, because we know that death is not the end. That as Stephen is stoned and killed, he falls asleep, Because when he opens his eyes, he will be in the presence of the Lord. In our sermon in a sentence this morning, especially as we see the death of Stephen, 
especially as we recognize that death is all around us and even the death in our own community, is that in the end, you and I will be in eternal rest in our heavenly home with our heavenly Father. You and I, in the end, will have an eternal rest if we are in Christ with our heavenly Father who is our Savior. The tragedy, the tragedy that took place in our community this week does not end there. The good news of the gospel is that while a boy like Ethan falls asleep, in a moment his eyes will open to the glory of God. And that in a moment our eternal resting place will not be a culture that shouts at us, a culture that stones us, and Stephen's last breaths would not just be taken here on earth, but he would go into the heavenlies and awaken to his Savior. That is the good news of the gospel. If you were in Jesus today, then this life is not the end. Even though you're rejected, even though you're living as resident aliens, it's not the end. It's only the beginning for what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do and what he has done. And so this morning, if you need prayer and if you would say, man, this whole Jesus thing is new to me. I don't know what would happen if my life was taken from me today. Would I open my eyes and see the Son of Man there? If that is not your story, I will be in the back. I would love to pray for you. And as we sing this last song together and we prepare our hearts for, for not just what the Lord is doing or is going to do, but, but for communion with the believers in the presence of one another, Whatever the Lord is speaking to your heart in this moment, may you be obedient. And if you need prayer, I will be in the back. I would love to pray for you. I would love to encourage you. But let's continue to sing. Let's stand together as we worship who our God is, who we worship all that he has done, all that he is going to be. And then we will come together and we will close with communion. If you need prayer, make your way to the back. I would love to, to meet you there. In the end, our eternal home is heaven, and we will be at rest with our Savior.